So what we plan to do is, in a moment or two, ask Chiloka to speak, whether from there or here is his choice, and uh, short, possibly autobiographical remarks, and then he's going to come back and sit over there, and I'll ask him a few questions, and then we'll draw you in, and Bradley's here as well, and if there's anybody who asks uh, via Twitter, and you're allowed to use your mobile phones and your iPads here, if you wish. The hashtag is LSE Chaloka. So uh, if you'd prefer to ask a question that way, it'll be picked up by Bradley, who'll catch my eye. Uh, and we'll finish it about between a quarter to eight and eight o'clock. Now, uh, Chaloka... Biani has has been at LSE substantially longer than even I've been at LSE. It's quite a long time. Came here from, uh, what was the name of that place again? I can't remember. Oxford. 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 (laughs) Oxford. Where he did his uh, PhD and uh, was a fellow at a number of the colleges and working in their refugee, what's it called? Centre. Yes. And got a job here at LSE, and we're very delighted to have had Chiloka for what is now nearly 20 years, now that we're in 2015. And in that time, he has, as you'd imagine, from an academic, published a bunch of books, uh, Human Rights Standards and the Movements of People, uh, Exclusion from something which I can't read, Exclusion from... Protection. From Protection. <laughs> Uh, some guides to asylum law, uh, a very interesting new one which I commend to you, collected essays on the use of international law, and uh, a book on, on, on a right to seek asylum. So, so he has carved out a, an intellectual space in international law which has a specialist dimension on the movements of people and asylum. But uh, in a way that is uh, remarkable, uh, Chiloka Biani has also carved out an entirely separate uh, career in international law. And I've got a briefing which I propose very briefly to read because there is too much in it for me to have memorised in advance of this meeting. He served as a legal advisor and expert to the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, the Office of the High Commissioner on Refugees. Uh, the World Health Organization, the United Nations Population Fund, the United Nations Development Fund for Women, the European Union, the Commonwealth Secretariat, and the African Union. And uh, as many of us may know, he is now a United Nations Special Rapporteur on the human rights of internally displaced persons. Just before we hear from Chiloka, pause to put out of your mind the idea that these are well-funded positions with a team, a secretariat, and opportunities to earn vast amounts of money uh, while teaching at LSE. These are the equivalent of internships which are unpaid. These are voluntary. And the fact that Chiloka has taken on a succession of these, culminating in the extraordinarily challenging current special rapporteurship on the human rights of internally displaced persons is something worthy of pause and note. The United Nations system would not work without the selflessness, determination and intellectual and political integrity of the academic community that works within it, of 
whom Chiloka Biani, my colleague, is such an outstanding example. So uh, I'm delighted to be hosting him. Uh, it's hard to get him. He does these tours, uh, and he's just come back off leave. Tours, not rock tours. Internally displaced expertise tours. So we're very pleased to have him. Uh, Chiloka, the floor is yours for, as I say, about 10 or 15 minutes. Just okay. chat as you wish, and then we'll have the All conversation. Right. Thank you. Chiloka, be Well, thank you very much, Connor, for your kind introduction. But I think that most of the things that Connor has said are actually rumour. Uh, I don't look like I would have done all those things in uh, the short period of time that I've been in existence, uh, if you believe that. Uh, but it's a pleasure to be back. Uh, I was on leave last year, so I'm not quite sure that there's something in the grey matter upstairs. But uh, as we go on, we'll try and find out. I assume the mandate on the human rights of internally displaced persons in November 2010, and we'll hold it until November 2016, so it's about two years to go now. Um, when I assumed it, there were about perhaps 30 million internally displaced persons the world over. The number has now shot up to about 33.3 million of persons displaced within states by armed conflict alone. And if you add a disaster-related displacement, you have 27 million newly displaced each year uh, by disasters across the world. So much so that for the first time in June 2013, UNHCR sounded the alarm bell uh, and said that the combined numbers of displaced persons and refugees in the world, who number about 18 million, has for the first time surpassed the number of displaced persons and refugees during the Second World War. So you might have to think and wonder, is there a third world war going on, um, which is actually not as noticeable as the one uh, that we had. So because of the nature of the crisis of global proportions, when I assumed the mandate, I couldn't sleep for some weeks. Um, I thought, I'm just one person. What am I going to do uh, in relation to uh, these persons who need support, uh, protection, uh, and assistance? And after some discussions with my predecessors, uh, Francis Deng, who was the first mandate holder uh, in 1992 when the mandate was established after the end of the Second World War, um, then the conflicts left by the Second World War had displaced about 26 million people uh, within states. Uh, after Francis Deng, Walter Kellin, professor at the University of Bern, held the mandate uh, from 2004 until uh, 2010. So we had some discussions and settled on some thematic areas. Uh, the normative framework for IDPs was one, largely because uh, inspired by the idyllic scenes in Cancun, um, world leaders came to the conclusion that they should agree on measures of adaptation. And one of the measures they had agreed on was climate change-induced displacement uh, in the Cancun agreements. So it was important to unpackage that, to look at displacement as adaptation and distinguish it from rural urban migration. Um, we then also had to look at the African Union Convention on IDPs, which had just come um, into force in 2012, but was adopted in 2009. That too had to be added to the legal framework, the guiding principles on internal displacement uh, that Francis Deng had negotiated. 
Um, we also looked at uh, IDP women uh, for the reason that the majority of displaced persons are women and children. You know, most of the men uh, fight. Um, some of them escape um, away. Um, and I would just like to say that outside of the report, the missions I undertook indicated one particular aspect which is not fairly well known, and I would invite you to reflect on that, which is actually the role of dowry in displacement in relation to women. And I found this first in South Sudan, in Jongle, where young men who have become of age and want to marry and have no cattle to pay dowry. Uh, as a matter of cultural practice, they have to raid other communities and get the cattle that they need, are effectively um, stealing the cattle uh, in order to pay for their wives. Then I went to Sri Lanka two years later and found there that women were being deprived of land, mainly because land was a means by which women paid dowry during marriages. So there are stories of that sort which I can reflect on um, and things that you actually don't find in the textbooks uh, which inform uh, some of the thinking as well as uh, some of the work. So more recently I would like to highlight the missions that I undertook uh, in 2014. I undertook missions to Kenya, uh, first of all, which was my second visit to Kenya, uh, to follow up on my earlier mission uh, to check on my recommendations and found that they began to apply what we call durable solutions or remedies to try and resolve the problem, from land resettlement programs to cash grants. But again, the bulk of the IDPs were actually affected by electro violence, uh, had not been the beneficiaries of the system. Uh, other individuals were enterprising uh, and took the cash grants. Um, and there, I think the recommendations were to have a more ABC approach to durable solutions, uh, needs assessment, build a profile of IDPs, and determine uh, which ones um, are entitled to what types of solutions, rather than have a uniform solution. Also went the northeastern part of the country, uh, where pastoralists, nomadic groups, clash over resources. Climate change is a factor, slow onset disasters mainly, and political representation in the county system, all mixed together, multi-causal links. Then Cote d'Ivoire, which was also my second visit, Ivory Coast, and again I was following up because when I went to Ivory Coast the first time in 2012, two days before my arrival, about six internally displaced persons were killed. The camp had been violently closed. Uh, and I then began immediately to launch an investigation and ask the authorities to investigate the circumstances. And I was following up on this. They had carried out the investigation. They had identified the suspects, uh, and the trial had begun, but the judge was threatened. And so they had to take measures for the protection uh, of the judge and the judiciary, and the trial had been suspended. Importantly, they had ratified the African Union Convention on IDPs, conventions on statelessness, as well as uh, carried out documentation in relation to IDPs who had no documents. And documentation is important because without a document, you can't go to school, you can't access health services, you can't get employment, i.e. the right to be recognized as a person before the law would not actually exist for those IDPs who have no documentation. <coughs> From Cote d'Ivoire, Azerbaijan protracted uh, displacement since the early 1990s. And there I was pleasantly surprised. I found Azerbaijan 
had built modern housing for IDPs, better than any housing you'd find anywhere uh, in the world, and actually stood out as a model uh, in that regard. But there were problems in the sense that livelihood opportunities, that is employment, uh, income-generating activities, were not part of the housing structures, which is what you, you need in, in those kinds of situations. And so the advocacy uh, is there. From Azerbaijan, I went on to Haiti um, to look into the effects of the earthquake 2010, um, now almost 15 years, because it did take place in January uh, 2010, and found that there were still IDPs. Uh, reconstruction had begun. But again, reconstruction was taking place in the same places where the earthquake had struck along the fault lines. The buildings were not resilient. Um, IDPs had not moved very far from the places where they had been. Uh, IOM and others were applying a cash grant system for IDPs to rent houses. For some, that was a durable solution. For me and IOM, we came to the conclusion that this was a transitional solution. They needed to integrate the IDPs more into urban planning, and the entire Port-au-Prince actually looks like uh, a squatter settlement. And so the approach is more development-related and building on humanitarian uh, actors as well. Then finally, I went to the Ukraine uh, in September. Uh, the Ukraine is a new situation. The mandate had not been there before. And there I found a total lack of preparedness, despite the fact they were about 500,000, now six to 700,000 persons displaced in the Ukraine because of the fighting in the eastern part of the country, in the Donetsk region, um, Lohansk, uh, Mariupol, um, and those places. And also about 20,000 uh, from the Crimea uh, because of Russia's uh, annexation uh, of the Crimea. And this was totally unexpected um, on the part of the government. So the first thing is, complete self-denial that this has happened, and I think a reluctance to recognize the problem and to deal with it. So the problem was being dealt with by regional authorities, students, young persons, volunteers, civil society, engaging with IDPs, uh, giving them food, uh, shelter, clothing, and even with the onset of, sin, of, of winter. So the efforts there were first will adopt the law on IDPs, which had been on the statute book. My mandate had participated in its formulation, but there were forces opposed to it because most of the IDPs came from the eastern part. And there are those who didn't want to protect IDPs who came from areas of conflict. Uh, these are the people who are actually fighting against us. Why should we give them protection? On the part of the IDPs, they said, well, um, the eastern part of Ukraine is Ukraine's breadbasket. It's also Ukraine's manufacturing base. And for so many years, we have supported and fed Ukraine. It's time that Ukraine looked after us. So there are all kind of dynamics there. But to cut the story short, uh, certain measures were recommended, and we agreed an MOU to have uh, a meeting and a workshop to actually plan out the system of effectively responding to IDPs uh, in the Ukraine, effective coordination mechanisms at the level of central government and also with local authorities, and also making sure that the Soviet system of registration, which uh, restricts benefits to areas of residence in relation to IDPs, uh, is somewhat waived because IDPs in places of displacement cannot access their benefits 
their benefits can only be accessed in the original places. So there's something there that needed uh, to be done. There were also some risks. Um, when we went to Kosovo, I believe it was, we went to North Mitrovica, where the Albanian population largely is. They gave us an escort to southern Mitrovica, where the Serbs are, because they said there are roadblocks from time to time. But in the north, you'll be fine. We came out of uh, meetings with IDPs, and we found uh, Albanian youths had blocked the road. And we asked why. One of the cars uh, in the delegation, there were about eight cars or so, had a Serbian registered diplomatic number plate. And the only way you can get a diplomatic number plate registered is to go to Serbia uh, on the part of the UN, because the UN is neutral with regard to the recognition of Kosovo. And the youths wanted to know what this car was doing in that area with Serb number plates, uh, which you know, rekindled memories of the conflict. And it took some 30 minutes you know, for the police to come uh, and displace them and release us. The security detail said, well, we can get you out of here. Um, and I said, well, that will harm my delegation, so let's wait for the police to, to arrive. And fortunately, um, the incident passed off. But in the Ukraine, we had a nasty, nasty uh, accident in the eastern part. Uh, a truck went into the side of one of the cars, I think the second car, which actually, incidentally, was supposed to be an official car. Uh, and it's lucky that it was an armored vehicle. Um, the driver got away with some scratches. Uh, one of the uh, colleagues in the car had, had a bump on her heap. But that, again, you know, reminds you that there are certain risks um, you know, to trying to help others. Because for this mandate, there's not a luxury of going to a capital city and ending there. When you arrive in a capital city, that's the beginning of your journey. You may have some five, seven hours to travel by road, to remote areas, um, to meet with IDPs. And sometimes you're actually a politician. So you, you've got your soapbox, you stand with a microphone and address about 300 people in terms of what their issues are, what their rights are, and how they should be treated. And of course, most importantly, listening to them, because you actually act as a voice for them internationally. They have messages to send to the UN, to the Human Rights Council, to the General Assembly, uh, and the Security Council, which is a totally different uh, ballgame. So with those remarks, perhaps, uh, I should take my seat and uh, allow Connor to agree with me, and whatever questions you have uh, you know, to raise as well, I'll be happy to deal with them. Thank you very much. Uh, no, this isn't a grilling at all. This is, uh, this is a much lighter event, Chiloka. Uh, we'll come to you guys in a minute. And remember, uh, tweet to Bradley, hashtag LSE Chiloka. I, I'm going to start a bit autobiographically, if sure. I may, because I was interested in that, and you talked about the mandate, and we'll get to the mandate in a minute. But how did you end up in Oxford? I mean, you know... And how did you end up doing human rights? What's the backstory there? It's a pretty remarkable thing to have the PhD from Oxford in human rights. And, and what fired your imagination, both in further education, possibility of becoming a scholar, and in the subject of human rights? I think it was a mixture of fortunes. I was lucky that when I started as an undergraduate at the University of Zambia, I was inspired by a number of personalities who actually persuaded me to become mm. an academic in the first instance.
But by then, my interest in human rights had been shaped by the fact that as students, we gave support to liberation movements that were fighting to liberate uh, Angola, Mozambique, uh, Southern Rhodesia, Namibia, and South Africa. And I was the secretary of the Zambia Association for the Liberation of uh, Southern Africa. And liberation movements would then ask us to carry out some research on cross-border incursions by South African forces, apartheid South Africa, that is. Is there a right of hot pursuit? Can they lawfully attack refugees and refugee camps? And when refugee camps were attacked, of course, as students, we went with blankets and uh, helped evacuate them to take them to, to hospital. So from there on, my interest in human rights and refugees, I never forgot the first faces of refugees that I saw uh, as a student. And I think that uh, that memory uh, you know, remained with me. And when I started teaching at the University of Zambia, which was many years ago, I actually thought I was going to teach public law. But I knew I had a great interest uh, in this area. And the person who was supposed to teach public international law uh, for some reason could not. And the dean then asked me and said, can you teach public international law? And I jumped at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and since then, I never looked back. Then I had two opportunities. One in 1986, I uh, came to uh, Oxford. There was um, a seminar on the implementation of the African Union Convention on Refugees. Uh, and I was invited to go because I had done some papers on the subject. So I walked around Oxford. Uh, I thought it was a nice place. Um, and I wondered whether I could ever be able to, to go and study there. Um, so the thought entered my mind, but I put it in the parking lot. Uh, and then the same, the same year, you know, 88 followed, and I was invited to go to Columbia for uh, a seminar on human rights. Um, and also that coincided with uh, the American Society of International Law meeting. And I had a group of students. I was very active uh, as a student in debating and in mooting. And one of the things I did when I started teaching was to encourage students to moot. So my students were able to uh, beat the other teams in Southern Africa and therefore were eligible to go and compete uh, in the Jessup moot. Um, and there, I think they got to the semifinals and they lost to a brilliant uh, Australian team you know, at the time. Uh, but that was the setting in which I met Ian Brownlee, who was then at the American Society of International Law. And we started talking. I you know, expressed the, uh, my interest in studying at Oxford, and he gave me some ideas. And after that, I was inspired, and I went back um, and applied uh, to go and study uh, at Oxford. And luckily, I also got a scholarship from the Association of Commonwealth Universities, uh, which funded my, my study there. And that's how... I found myself in Oxford, studied there from 88 uh, until 91. And when Brownlee said, what, what do you want to study? I said, well, I'm very passionate about uh, refugees. I'm very passionate about uh, movement. Uh, he suggested other topics, uh, the admission, admissibility of map evidence before international tribunals in international law. Uh, I said, well, I'm done with classic international law. Uh, for some four years, I had taught it uh, by myself. But human rights was then a new area. So we settled on freedom of movement within states, which then became the foundation for what later became internally displaced persons. And at that time, I was not to know it. Mm. But after I finished my studies at Oxford, at a seminar, the Ford Foundation came visiting. 
uh, they wanted to speak to students, uh, find out Margot actually, who is there? <laughs> this, is, this is Margot's story because she was a program officer at the Ford Foundation at the time. Uh, and I did quite sheepishly, innocently say, well, I, I had done a PhD on freedom of movement within states. I said, well, that might be interesting because, you know, we're interested in uh, internally displaced persons. And I said, well, in my study, I, there was a section on the relocation of persons. You know, at the time, the term internally displaced persons hadn't emerged. And quite um, thankfully, the Ford Foundation, as a rookie scholar that I was, gave me a grant to look into internally displaced persons from you know, my, my PhD studies. And then I wrote the first paper, actually, on internally displaced persons. And it was that paper that formed uh, the fabric of the guiding principles that Francis Deng used. So I worked fairly closely uh, with Francis Deng. I worked fairly closely with uh, Walter Kaelin as well. And by the time it came to drafting the African Union Convention on IDPs, I actually went back to that paper mm. as a starting point. So that's the uh, yeah. autobiographical. So note. really quite a, and we'll hear from Margot about this callow youth who showed up in New York <laughs> and looks exactly as he does today, I'm sure. I don't change. Uh, uh, he doesn't change. But uh, I said earlier, of course, that the post is unremunerated and voluntary and so on, but it is immensely prestigious and quite a lot of people want to get them. Was there a sort of mild way in which you had to engage in politics to get the special rapporteur? Do you, you obviously had the specialism and so on. Is there a sort of regional fit? Was there a sort of suggestion of various people who might have wanted to do it? How does it work? How do you, how do you as it were, get to be um, the special rapporteur? The Human Rights Council, after when Walter Kellen's mandate was coming to an end, uh, obviously issued the list of mandates um, that would become vacant, and we're calling out, um, you know, for people to fill in those positions. And at that time, I was actually in Kenya on sabbatical leave. I was working on the Constitution of Kenya, and so I hadn't seen the fact that uh, this had been advertised. And then a number of stakeholders sent me an email and said, uh, you know, you might want to uh, look at this. And I was so frankly tired, I didn't want to do it. I had declined at first, because between 2003 to 2006, I was involved in the Great Lakes, uh, formulating a pact, an agreement post-conflict. When that finished, or before it finished, um, the African Union Convention work started, 2005. To 2009. It took some four years to negotiate and draft. And before that finished, I was drafted to be a member of the Committee of Experts working on the Constitution of Kenya. So I was really, really tired. Um, but nonetheless, someone actually filled it out for me uh, and sent it out on my behalf. Um, and at that time, you, <laughs> you, know, you had to be nominated by, um, you know, by your state. Um, the Zambian government actually didn't pay so much attention to it, and I think the African Union decided to sign it. Um, and then I got notification from the Human Rights Council that I was one amongst uh, some 500 applicants uh, for that mandate. And later they had trimmed the number to about 18. My name was still there. And then they had trimmed the number to about three, and I was the first uh, person recommended and then the president of the council called me and said, look, okay, this is a voluntary position. You understand what it's all about. You know, you talked about special procedures and uh, special rapporteurs in the human rights classes. 
Um, and I said, yes, yes, I, I know what it is about. So the appointment then came much against my, uh, my wishes mm-hmm. at the time because I was really tired. tired. It's not a bad alibi for missing an ad. I was drafting <laughs> the Constitution of Kenya. Well... <laughs> <laughs> I have one or two, but we might just keep an eye on people who might have some questions as well. Does anybody want to sort of catch my eye to start, to start things going? Yeah, lady here over here. Yeah, please. Could, do you mind, uh, as the microphone heads to you, it, it's, it's nice always to know who you are and what, what you do, if you feel able to tell us. Yes, good evening. My name is Baini Ye. I work for Redress, which is a human rights organization. Um, and we work closely with uh, Kenyan IDP, so I'm very glad that you mentioned your mission to Kenya. Um, and my question um, is about advocacy. Um, in Kenya, uh, we work closely with the community-based organizations, so grassroots level uh, leaders who represent IDPs. And what they've been asking us is, what can we do to push for the implementation of the IDP Act, which was recently um, adopted by, by the Kenyan government and which was very welcomed by the IDPs themselves. So the question is, what can they do to push forward with this act so that it will become reality and not only paper. My second question is... Um, you uh, if you're allowed, give it, and I'm giving you permission to ask it, okay. but it needs to be fairly short, Benny. Okay. Yes, the second question is very short. Um, what is your future uh, perspective of engagement with Kenya? With? With Kenya. So what is your future engagement, engagement with Kenya? Okay. Thank Fine. you. May yeah, I? go ahead. Go ahead. Well, both very good questions. I also work with uh, with redress, actually, um, pillage, uh, plundering of resources in armed conflict, and accountability. I think we had uh, Emmanuel uh, prepared and also a seminar in the Netherlands uh, at some point in time. But that's besides the uh, the point. Um, the IDP Act was actually a product uh, of my first visit uh, to Kenya. Uh, made the recommendation. The recommendation was accepted. And my mandate, I and my assistants worked with um, the committee uh, in parliament um, that was drafting the act. Um, and we co-drafted it uh, in a right up to the end until it was drafted. So I followed it very, very closely indeed. And on my second visit, I raised the question uh, of the implementation uh, of the act. And I think what we're waiting for was the new budget uh, at the time last year in July. The budget process begins in July because they had to appoint new people uh, that the Act requires to be appointed. And they needed to make a budgetary provision uh, you know, for that in order to begin to activate the structures uh, under the Act. Um, so as far as I understood, there was provision in the budget you know, for that um, you know, to, to move ahead. Um, and I think the individuals under the Act have been appointed, uh, RE officials, um, principally from the Ministry of Devolution and Special Programs Department within that ministry. Um, so that particular first phase um, required some advocacy with the Cabinet Secretary for Devolution as well as the Office of the Attorney General. Um, and I think what actually now remains is to activate um, you know, the Act to make sure that, as you say, uh, it's operationalized, but the structures and the personnel, I think, are now in place. In terms of future engagement, Kenya has been very open um, at the Human Rights Council, the General Assembly, and they've indicated that you know they like to cooperate fully um, with my mandate. 
So what we agreed was an MOU, a roadmap of engagement between my mandate and the government of Kenya, uh, which details measures that the government needs to take. And it's also an open-door policy that I really don't have to write again to the government seeking permission to go and visit. The MOU simply means that uh, my mandate can go to Kenya at any time and engage with the government and stakeholders. And so that's where things actually are at. Um, last uh, August, I had a meeting with the AU in Nairobi. And again, I discussed with the Kenyan authorities what had happened uh, in northern Kenya, where I think 176 million uh, US dollars was pending you know, to be dispersed to IDPs to reconstruct their houses. And I learned that that money had now been released. So, and with other partners, the Refugee Consortium of Kenya, the Kenya Red Cross, and a whole series of uh, other bodies, um, you know, are partners that uh, I work with to try and make sure that things uh, move forward. Okay. Great. Thanks, Benny. We have a couple of caught my eye already. Is there anybody else like to? We've certainly, I, I know who you both are, but if you could introduce yourselves and put your hand up so they can find you at the microphone. Possibly Margot first and then Philippe. Anybody else want to come in in this round before I come back in myself? Uh, we're taking Philippe first. Yeah. Many thanks, uh, Philippe Pesch, also from the Law Department. Actually, shall I neighbor. office, na- office neighbor? <laughs> uh, but I'm asking this question here. I could obviously ask it on the corridor, but I'm asking this question here because I think it's of general, it's of general interest. Um, I have worked in international uh, organizations myself before, and much of my work at the time was about the political fight, actually policies, different views on policy, which in my area, which is financial regulation, is quite obvious what this is about. So what I'm wondering is, what is the fight about policy views? What is the fight of, about different views that different states might have on uh, displaced, uh, displaced persons? In, in, in your area, how important is it? And first and foremost, how do you deal with it? Because uh, so, as I have understood so far, you are a lonely, uh, a lonely soldier here, and you are totally on your own. How do you deal with these adults? Thank you. And can we take Margaret at the same time, actually? Uh, Export Foundation, the person who discovered Chilokopia. One of my human rights mentors. <laughs> Indeed. We were very lucky to discover Chilokopia. What impressed me most was that he had a black belt in judo. <laughs> <laughs> But I usually really, don't mention I, that. <laughs> so one of the few people who understood anything about this area. Yeah. And of course, if you Just say who you are, Margaret, for the rest of us. Sorry? Say who Sorry, you are. I'm an interesting fellow at the Centre for the Study of Human Rights at LSE. And most of my working life has been one way or another involved in human rights. Um, and Charlotte mentioned that I was at the Ford Foundation responsible for the Human Rights Programme could you hold a little closer to you? Can yeah. you hear me now? Yes. Okay. Um, and uh, what I wanted to say was that, of course, at the time that uh, Chaloka was, um, took this uh, issue up, it, it was in politically very, very controversial, and I think it remains controversial, and hence your question. Um, during the Cold War, the essentially refugees were accepted by East and West as part of the political football. At the end of the Cold War, 
Western governments certainly wanted to close their, close their borders. So they didn't want to accept any more refugees. So, they, so hence, they wanted people to stay in their own countries and become internally displaced. Now, being internally displaced was political dynamite because that also meant it raised issues of national sovereignty, intervention in internal affairs when the international community got involved. And Chaloka, my question, because I haven't been following sure. it uh, recently, is how controversial does the field remain? And, and how much do you feel you've been able to achieve thus far in your six years? And if you had a magic wand, what would you want to, 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 to do? Thank you. I mean, both, in a way, are about the lonely soldier dealing with 33.3 million internally displaced persons. Indeed. Um, I think Mago has touched on some of the uh, issues that uh, Philip has raised. But I think the major policy issue that carries political dimensions is the inherent contradiction between protecting persons within their own state, firmly under the protection of their own state, and international measures to protect such persons. You know, internally displaced persons, international protection, it's a contradiction in terms, you know, first of all. Uh, and it was also seen, perhaps, in the early days as a containment strategy, which would undercut the right to seek and obtain asylum uh, elsewhere, a system that had served the world very well since the 1920s. Uh, and there are some fears that it will disappear uh, because of the shift uh, towards uh, internally displaced persons. But the way in which that was dealt with, and also to relate to Mago's uh, question, was Francis Deng and his group and I had some discussions about state responsibility for human rights, that it is the responsibility of the state to protect um, human rights uh, within its jurisdiction under international law and that sovereignty is not an excuse uh, to not discharge international obligations. So from that came the idea of sovereignty as responsibility, that you simply can't use it as an excuse not to protect persons who are displaced, but it is actually, on the one hand, an important measure of the responsibility of the state. On the other, it's also the basis for external engagement with other states and other actors. And I think from there began some sustained advocacy uh, on the human rights aspects um, of internal displacement. And of course, when you looked at international humanitarian law, there were more established provisions already about the protection of civilians uh, during armed conflict, the, pro the uh, principle of distinction uh, as well, uh, the prohibition of population transfers and the like. So that legal regime, I think, was used fairly um, effectively. Nonetheless, you know, each time I go to the Human Rights Council, and I still recall my very first meeting uh, in the Human Rights Council, uh, there are a number of states that will raise their hands, persistent objectors. Uh, Pakistan, we actually do not believe that there are internally displaced persons and that internally displaced persons should be protected in internationally. These are dislocated people. Uh, China will say, well, uh, China's policy is that it is responsibility of the state of origin uh, you know, to protect uh, internally displaced persons. Um, and so you get you know, the usual 
states that will um, make those kinds of stands. But I think the great majority of states have now actually bought into the idea of protecting IDPs and look to the mandate um, for technical support and capacity in building an effective response system and also engaging with the international system. I mean, Serbia invited me to go uh, to Serbia uh, because they wanted some advice on durable solutions, on the housing project, and also to get support from international donors because I relate directly uh, to international partners. When I find there are issues that need to be dealt with, then I will go to the World Bank, I'll go to UNDP, I'll go to some of the bilateral donors, whether it's Norway, Switzerland, Denmark, uh, you know, those countries that are usually fairly well predisposed. Uh, you know, do you have contingency funding? Uh, can you just set aside, you know, so many dollars to help a housing project or to help IDPs in this area. So often they do respond. So you also operate as a fixer. So some states actually see benefits in inviting the mandate. Um, and I think the major sea change that has occurred after the Human Rights Council was established is the, effects, the effect of the uh, Universal Periodic Review Mechanism by which all states are subjected to scrutiny by the Council. And because of that, a number of states always want to show that they're actually good citizens of the world by inviting special rapporteurs uh, to go and visit uh, their countries before their time for review is up. And special rapporteurs also play the game and look at which states are due next you know, for universal periodical. So it's a quid pro quo, uh, and it seems to be working fairly well. So you also have your allies. I mean, your allies will stand up one after another. We affirm the protection of IDPs. The guiding principles were uh, affirmed by the heads of states in 2005 as the internationally recognized framework for dealing with IDPs. And now with the African Union Convention on IDPs, which is the first legally binding instrument, um, you know, the African states will always stand behind it behind IDP protection and therefore also are behind the mandate. The inter-American states will also do the same thing. Uh, European states will also do the same thing. Um, so you will have perhaps you know, a few states from principally Asia who might stand up and say, you know, we actually don't think that uh, you know, this is a worthwhile cause, uh, internationally speaking, it's interference uh, in domestic affairs. Having said that, other issues have to do with the fact that an IDP remains within an internationally recognized boundary. Now, there are pluses and minuses. There are political minefields, because if you go to Serbia and Kosovo after the proclamation of independence of uh, Kosovo, the whole dynamics change about who is an IDP and who is not an IDP, because the borders have shifted. Um, you go to Georgia, South Ossetia and Abkhazia are separatist entities. Um, Georgia refers to them as occupied territories. But they see the value of the mandate, i.e. protecting persons in internationally recognized boundaries, because they say these boundaries are internationally recognized, and these two entities are not internationally recognized. So we have statehood, we have formal title to territory. Uh, the Ukraine is taking the same line in relation to the Crimea. Uh, that, you know, as the uh, General Assembly uh, passed a resolution proclaiming the Crimea to be part of the territorial integrity uh, of the Ukraine. So they see IDPs in the Crimea uh, as falling within international recognized boundaries. And then, of course, you have to deal with uh, 
with other states that may be opposed to that view. Um, so there may be hard questions of international law, but you, you may avoid the politics. Sometimes you can't avoid them at all. If I had a magic wand, what would I do? Um, when you look back to the creation of the mandate, it was clearly a cop-out. I mean, what the UN should have done would have been to create an agency uh, for IDPs. They didn't do that. Uh, instead, they established the uh, Interagency Standing Committee as a kind of multi-agency approach and for the mandate to work within the system uh, to advocate and mainstream the rights uh, of IDPs. Now, my two predecessors had posh titles, special representatives of the Secretary General and IDPs. By the time I assumed the mandate, because of the changes in the Human Rights Council, it became a special rapporteurship, although the nature, authority, and weight of the mandate has remained the same. But it's quite clear that, A, it cannot be done on a voluntary basis anymore. The crisis is so huge. And, of course, I thank the LSC and my colleagues for giving me uh, a great deal of latitude uh, you know, to engage um, with, with the mandate. Um, you know, Susan is sat there, but she's my professor and chair in the department. Um, and so I'm, I'm grateful to the fact that uh, you know, they accommodate my, my interests. So the first thing that has to be done uh, clearly is to shift it uh, and, and have a more permanent position in relation to it. Secondly, a special rapporteur is outside the system. You're external. A special representative is within the system, which was the logic. And it needs to go back to that, to someone who can work within the system, uh, having a full presence and resources you know, at all times. Um, as matters now stand, officially one can only do two missions. With regard to my mandate, at least the office uh, of the High Commissioner, again, defers. I have three mandates that I can undertake officially. But I also get some external support to do follow-up, because unless you're able to do follow-up on your recommendations and find out what has happened and to move states again, uh, your original visits might actually not be worthwhile. So they need staff along, I think, the lines of... Um, the uh, special representative uh, of the Secretary General on Children and Armed Conflict, what was Olara's um, mandate before, and aligned to UNICEF, and maybe in this case either UNHCR uh, principally. Uh, and this is the, uh, the point of advocacy, you know, moving uh, in that direction. Uh, promoting more regional instruments. The uh, AU uh, is one. Um, there are some signs that the... Um, Inter-Americas may move in that direction as well through advocacy. I've been relating to them, um, and I think we're going to see whether we can have some kind of Katahina declaration side-by-side side to refugees with IDPs. Um, Asia is, ASEAN is also interested, although there are some awkward customers there, but as a block, they're interested in having some kind of regional instrument. So I see the regional <coughs> instruments more as a way of not having a global instrument, because you may not have it uh, at all, uh, you know, given the politics, uh, you know, the events in uh, Ukraine, you know, have brought about a chill in the air in terms of international relations and international politics, and it's highly unlikely that you'd actually ever get a global instrument. Uh, but moving along regional borders. Uh, we've got a tweet or two we'll take in a minute, but do you sometimes think, listening to the, those responses, I'm there, so the Secretary General can stand up and say, we're, we're, we're dealing with the issue of internally displaced persons. 
and that you're kind of fiddly. I'm, I'm putting it extremely for you to respond to. And here you are, voluntarily, dealing with 33.3 million people, whatever it is, and no resources. The chances of the UN suddenly deciding to fund this seem to me to be extremely low. And, and this is an additional point for to get a response from you, you go into a place, are you able to delve into the systemic issues that have driven to the surface this internal displacement? Can you blame, say even blame UN agencies, because there's a credible argument made by colleagues here, for example with regard to northern Uganda, that internal displacement is a consequence of a management of a situation by the government which, in which some of the agencies have colluded. Is Chilokobiani able to go into a place and get under the skin of it? Or is he a kind of, your word earlier, a sort of fixer? Because a fixer wouldn't really be terrifying for governments. A fixer would be somebody who would join governments in calling for more dodge from the international community, you know. So, do you sometimes feel, ending where I started, manipulated? Let me, let me start from there. Every visit has some political dynamics uh, to it. And you should realize that by the time the state has invited you to come, of course they're trying to manipulate your visit. Uh, that's fairly clear. But you should be able to tell in advance what the source and contours of the manipulation are and work around them. You should also be able to have a very clear plan and agenda of what it is that you want to execute once you go to a country and to be able to get the results that, that you want. So the agenda should be set with that in mind. So in terms of actually getting underneath the skin, uh, yes, I do. Um, I've had no problems with that. I've had reactions, of course, uh, in the context of internal discussions, and I might give um, you know, a few examples. Sri Lanka, that's a tough place to go to. Um, it's the only place I've been to where almost 24 hours you have no space to yourself. Uh, you get in a car, you know, there is a police motorcade. It's like you're a head of state or some minister. There's a, a motorcade ahead of you with blazing with sirens. Um, wherever you go, there's someone by your side for your own security. Um, you go to your hotel room, there are people standing outside the door. They are talking 24 hours. They, they switch. You know, each time you turn in your, in your bed, you can actually hear that there are people out there for your own security, you know, quote, unquote. <laughs> um, and then when I went, you know, there were sleek presentations about what has been done. Um, we have no more IDPs. We have applied durable solutions. Um, and this is what we're doing. So you listen very politely, you know, at that stage um, until you go to the areas concerned. And so I went to uh, the northern part of Sri Lanka, Jaffna, and it was quite clear that there were IDPs there, met with them, discussed with them. And for the first time, which I think was the most moving um, incident I've ever encountered, I was not told by the UN what exactly the state of affairs was. They said, you're going to meet some IDPs. And I walked in the room, greeted by silence. Around the room, there were about 20 women in a kind of horseshoe formation. And they were carrying photographs. And it occurred to me immediately from your human rights, this is a case of disappearances. Um, that was very, very hard. I mean, the message they gave out was, please help us. 
find our children because they were not able to meet the High Commissioner when the High Commissioner went. Uh, when the Commonwealth Summit uh, took place, they were trying to meet Prime Minister David Cameron. They, they didn't succeed. Um, but I met them, so I was able to go there um, and, and meet with them and discuss with them. So by the time I went back to Colombo, I told them there are IDPs, there are so many of them, and this is what we need to do. First of all, we need to carry out a joint needs assessment to actually see what are the needs in terms of applying durable solutions. Uh, we need to set out uh, a task force and invite the UN uh, working group on forces appearances because these persons were IDPs. You know, as the conflict ended, when those that had been held by the Tamils were crossing over to government-held areas, uh, young men and men were taken away on suspicion that you know they were Tamil fighters. Um, and records were kept, and they were told, you know, we'll bring them back, and they've never come back. So I raised that issue, but the Sri Lankan government, actually, the Human Rights Council admitted they had carried out a joint needs assessment and found there were more IDPs than they had cared to admit, um, that the issue of disappearances was also being looked into. At first, they tried to say, this is outside the scope of your mandate. I said, no, it is within my mandate, and I explained why um, it was within my mandate. I'd also told them I wanted guarantees specifically that all those persons that I spoke to would be protected and not harmed. And they said, we don't want this in the report. I said, no, it will stay in the report because for me, it's a measure of protection in relation to the persons that, are, that I found. So when I'm doing that side of things, I'm a totally different person. There you're a special rapporteur, you're hitting hard, you're investigating, these are the facts. When you're a diplomat, deal with the international system, there you, you need a different kind of persona as a fixer yeah. uh, and APC. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating, fascinating. Anybody want to come in here? Got this gentleman here and we've got a tweet. Anybody in the middle? The middle's quite quiet. We've got, this, we've got Susan. So let's take... Uh, Bradley, can we have the tweet, if there's a tweet question? And uh, you need the tweeter needs a microphone. Have you got a microphone? Thank you. This one comes from uh, at Olez, O-L-E-Z. Um, I think it's a former student of yours, uh, Ole Labuta. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, he asks, how do we deal with people who masquerade as IDPs? Mm. Uh, well, let's take a couple in a row. Sir, you got that one. Sure, masquerade. Yeah. Um, perhaps linking to... Um, who are you? Uh, my name's Nicholas Joseph. I'm a, a law student here at LSE. Thank you. Um, so perhaps linking to your work on national constitution making and so on, my question would be, um, having said all of the, the issues and, and weaknesses of the international system, um, what scope is there for greater protection of IDPs under newly formed and newly created domestic constitutions? And also, how can uh, IDP, uh, IDP communities better um, be better involved in constitution-making to protect rights of, of certain communities. Great. Thanks, Nicholas. And, Susan, you need to introduce yourself, but uh, before we go to Chiloka... Susan. I'm Susan Marks, a colleague of Chiloka's and Connor's in the Law Department. You said towards the beginning of your presentation that in terms of the scale of the problem of both IDPs and refugees, we face something like World War III... And I find that a really fascinating and powerful suggestion. And I wonder if you could say more about what it would mean to 
really take that seriously? What constitutes this World War III, which is not a world war in the same sense sure. as World War was yeah. one and two, Indeed. Uh, but nonetheless is, is something of global scale and is probably made up by disparate phenomena, which include smaller wars, sure. both international and internal <coughs> conflicts or other or civil wars, uh, but also climate change sure. and, and, and a range of other problems. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that so that we have a, a, to, to enhance our sense of the conditions in which uh, these problems uh, arise on this absolutely phenomenal and appalling scale. Thank you. Okay. Great. Thanks, Susan. Uh, look, there's three there. In okay. Your First, order. those who masquerade. If, uh, if they do. If they do. I've always encountered from... Um, Kenya to uh, Cote d'Ivoire to some extent, the idea of bogus IDPs, uh, they're actually not genuine IDPs, Haiti uh, as well. You know, these are people that are infiltrate camps or we close down the camps and then they come in. Um, but if you look at those camps, no one, I think, in their sane mind would actually want to go and live in an, in an IDP camp and masquerade as, as an IDP. You know, that, that's the first point of, um, uh, of reference. The conditions are bad. There's always a stench around there. Respiratory illnesses are very common, you know, as a result of that. But my response has been, did you carry out a proper profile of the IDPs with proper registration systems at the very outset? And the answer is always no. So if you really want to avoid the so-called bogus IDPs, the front line is to conduct a profile of the IDP population as it arrives and to have a proper registration system, a needs assessment in terms of protection and assistance, who wants what, um, those who have disabilities, uh, children, women and the like, and have a proper picture. If that is neglected at the outset, then of course you have problems, you know, and so that, that is always the line, actually, you know, to tech. And even as they apply durable solutions, uh, needs assessment is very important, which is why the Sri Lankans agreed to do it. And in the end, it helped them. They said we actually found that we had more IDPs than we had cared to, to admit. Um, so that's a neglect of one of the major fundamental aspects uh, of frontline protection um, to IDPs. In terms of the second question, constitutions, participation by IDPs, and how do they respond? Um, in the Kenyan constitution, we ask the question, why did the crisis take place? It manifested itself in, in an electoral crisis, as you know. But if you follow the history of Kenya, you will find that ever since the era of the uh, multi-party plural democracy 1992, Displacement has been a factor uh, of that. Um, that goes to the history because some communities were transferred from other parts of the country and put in the Rift Valley. And as long as there was a one-party state, that was fine. But once um, democracy came about, and if democracy is not managed, it actually causes fragmentation completely. Uh, and there the approach was, fine, we want to maximize our vote as the people from the Rift Valley. And those that are not from the Rift Valley originally, from elsewhere, may not vote for us, and so we're going to throw them out. I mean, that's rather crude, but that is actually the design. 
and 2007 and 8 uh, was particularly uh, bad uh, because uh, you had 500,000 uh, individuals uh, displaced. So in looking at what went wrong, how do we fix this, um, the first thing was to make sure that in the design of the new constitution, uh, IDPs and disasters became the responsibility of the county governments in the devolved structure so that you know, they are on the front line and central government is not mainly involved in that and they've got budgets you know, to, to deal with that. But, of course, in the structure of politics, uh, the national government set up a ministry of devolution which relates to the counties and where they can control the counties to some extent. The second aspect uh, that was taken into account was to create um, an emergencies fund under the Constitution. So you have at least a regular budgetary fund, you have a fund for the county system, but you also have a fund for contingencies and emergencies, where in the event of disasters or indeed displacement, sudden uh, onset, there will be resources you know, to deal with that. The third was to ensure that the legal framework under the Constitution was properly responsive. So international instruments and treaties ratified by Kenya become part of the law of Kenya under the Constitution officially, uh, so that all those instruments can now be applied, uh, whereas in the past, you know, instruments were ratified, um, but not at all um, implemented. And Kenya had ratified the Great Lakes Pact, and there the protocol on protection and assistance to IDPs. They have not ratified the AU Convention, but it was that protocol that led to the uh, implementation of the IDP Act and its formulation as a measure of implementation. So the legal framework it itself has been uh, taken care of. And I think that in modern constitution making, uh, you actually have to look at how the entire legal framework might respond to a crisis, but it has to have a legal base somewhere, because if it's not in the Constitution, uh, people simply neglect it and say, sorry, you know, it's not part of, uh, of our menu. I think, Susan, there you hit the, uh, the nail on the head um, in terms of a, a third world war. When you look at the nature of the crisis from Syria, which has about six point seven million uh, IDPs, two point something refugees, uh, Iraq and ISIS follow, South Sudan about a million because of the fighting, the Central African Republic, also the fighting between the uh, Seleka and the Anpalaka rebels, uh, Colombia is trying to come to terms with the fact the Armed Forces Revolution of Colombia to have a peace agreement. Skirmishes are still going on. The Philippines, the Maoist guerrillas, there are peace discussions, but you know, conflict um, is still going on. In the DRC, uh, which has never known peace in the eastern part, um, there's still conflict going on. You go to Afghanistan, um, there's conflict going on uh, between you know, the Taliban and the government, and now ISIS has opened a recruitment center uh, in Afghanistan, which is going to muddy you know, the picture quite a lot. You go to Pakistan itself, uh, you know, in the eastern part, there's also fighting there, what they call you know, police enforcement. And you go to Ukraine, the eastern part of Ukraine, um, you know, conflicts on a huge scale. And Ukrainian armed forces are actually not ready and not up to the task. So private brigades have been formed by private business persons 
you know, to do the fighting on behalf of the government uh, and the state. So there's no region of the world at this point in time which is not exempt from conflict. We have conflict going on um, all the time, and the nature of the crisis is such that you know, humanity is actually robbed of, it, of its fabric. But the tenor of the statement, uh, in my view, has something to do with the threat that is posed by, in particular, uh, ISIS. From Iraq to Syria, now Afghanistan, it's a challenge the Westphalia model of statehood. There are no boundaries. It's an open sphere. Uh, and I think that those who care uh, to actually protect the Westphalian model of statehood have to take urgent measures uh, you know, to combat ISIS. Otherwise, uh, you know, the consequences um, you know, will be grave. But also, the consequences of the conflict are no longer confined to the basis of the conflict. We see attacks in Paris. We see attacks in, in Australia. We see attacks coming you know, to almost every part of the world, whether it's Kenya. Uh, those that are engaged in the fights are also keen to bring the conflict back uh, you know, to uh, those who protect certain values and ideals. Um, and I think this is what prompted me to say that there's actually a third world war going on, uh, which we haven't uh, really come to grips with. And I think that it will grow and it will expand. We'll have more and more attacks um, of a public nature uh, in the streets uh, because that's vulnerability. Um, and if you look at um, the Charlie uh, Hope to Attack, I actually, last week I went to Oslo for a meeting, but I passed through France to pay my, my respects and, and condolences. But when you looked at the location, it's clear that someone had identified that as a target, so it was targeted. Um, someone knew that the editorial meeting was taking place at that particular time, that suggests military planning and strategy. It's not simply terrorists, you know, moving around and, and shooting people in the street. And it was targeted also for, you know, very obvious reasons. So when you look at the nature of that kind of strategy, planning, and thinking, um, you know, you'd imagine that, you know, everyone is potentially vulnerable. Uh, and I could expand on it, but I think that's the the base in which, uh, from which I'm coming from, and then. You look at the consequences of those crises in humanitarian terms, and if the uh, Second World War, as bloody as it was, um, produced uh, so many refugees and IDPs, then that number is now surpassed. Um, that's an indicator, I think, of the nature of the crisis that we are actually in. But to, to, uh, to call it World War Three is to try to find some unifying dimension to it. Sure. And you described a lot of regional conflict. And I can see clearly that your mandate is, in a way, dismally flowing out of conflict, in the displacement flows from conflict. But only right at the end and then in passing did you use the word that many people would use to describe World War III, which they would call the War on Terror. And listening to you and remembering what you said at the start... Your interest in human rights was in itself fired by what the opponents of what you stood for called terrorism. So your interest in human rights grew out of an understanding of the logic of violence. Sure. 
I can't help but observe that you didn't use the word terrorism. I'm just wondering whether you feel that word and this term, the war on terror, is at all helpful here, or is it so wholly counterproductive that the war you seek to describe should not have that label attached to it? But if it doesn't have that label, what is the unifying theme behind this thing you describe as a war, not wars on terror? Well, I think that um, the war on terror here is hugely misleading. And it has also produced uh, consequences from the point of view of my mandate that are slightly odd. I think in the context of Afghanistan and the Taliban, fine. But now almost everywhere, instead of saying there's an armed conflict and we're actually engaged in an armed conflict, the name used is these are counter-terrorist operations from Pakistan to Ukraine, to Kenya, to Syria, to everywhere. So you have a sense that this actually negates an application of the laws of armed conflict, which we understand as part, um, at least, of the Westphalian model of dealing with conflict and, and violence. But by simply saying it's terrorism, we're, we're playing in both hands. The hands of a terrorist, terrorists, actually, they have some legitimacy from the war against terror. You're fighting them, and they have to fight back, you know, which is what they were doing. You know, if you saw the video uh, of one of the uh, attackers um, in Paris, um, and you know, he was saying something like, well, you think that you speak for the world, um, you know, but you don't. And we want to show you that we can also speak for ourselves. Mm. Uh, you say we want to destroy your way of life. You're destroying our way of life. So there's a motivation in saying, find the, the dynamics under which you say, okay, if there's a conflict, this is how you conduct yourself. Do not attack civilians. Identify your targets and deal with them. But here the attack is wholly on populations. There's no distinction because of uh, counterterrorism and terrorism by itself. The Ukrainian government, I say to them, but if you use armed conflict, uh, at least this will help you. They say, no, no, no these are counterterrorist operations. Okay, so then why do you have a ceasefire? And what is the logic of the ceasefire? Unless you have a, an armed conflict, you can't have a ceasefire. And there they stop, they say, no, no, no it's, it's simply counter-terrorism, because they want to be able to do anything yeah. that they want to do without restraint. Yeah. And the terrorists do the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, which is a huge challenge to international law. Does anybody have a question? We're, we're sort of, time's flying by, actually. Does any of the colleagues, we have a few tweets, and I have one or two others. We have a hand without, from my point of view, a body. Uh, okay. Perhaps we so can take enough. the hand. If it speaks, it has a face, too. Excellent, Tatiana. Could you say who you are and ask the question? And then, Bradley, will come for another tweet, and then we have a, another request for somebody. Uh, my name is Tatiana Flesses. I'm a colleague of Chaloka's, and Thank the you others for here. I've been trying to find him in the hall to ask him a question, but now I know why I can't. Um, I, um, I've been very interested, obviously, in everything you've said. And I wonder if you could comment on something um, that interests me specifically, which is the role of um, the access to culture for IDPs. I think that it's... It's easy to think of the protection of cultural heritage when people have actually been displaced from their nations. But to be displaced internally, I would imagine, also um, breaks the bond between a person and their homeland in significant ways. And I wondered if you could speak to that. 
Thank you. Uh, Bradley, can we have another tweet, if we have any? Tweet question. This one comes from at Fazila uh, Jahanga, who asks, um, how closely are other UN bodies or NGOs working with UNHCR to prevent emergence of IDPs in the first place through conflict resolution? Not unlike my earlier remark about getting to the structures. Sure, yeah. Uh, Do we have a third of the hall? We have a gentleman or a lady, sorry, I can't see. (laughs) Right at the second from the end. Madam, sorry. Uh, Name and question. Hi, my name is Bibre Bakins. Um, I'm a student in year 13. And my question is, you say that you have sort of um, problems, uh, clashes with the government sometimes um, when you're trying to... uh, uh, when you're trying to resolve the issue of IDPs, but then do you ever have conflict with IDPs themselves? Because you mentioned the role of a dowry in Sri Lanka and the fact that they're displaced because of a cultural um, custom, which is to use the land in the form of dowry. So do you ever get conflict between people who don't want you to interfere with those cultural uh, rituals? Great. Thank you. Those three. Uh, Thank you very much for the question. I think it would be more ideal for my uh, uh, colleague, the Special Rapporteur, um, on culture and heritage. But I think you raise a very important issue uh, in the sense that displacement does not just uh, destroy normal lives. It also destroys culture and cultural ties and relations. Um, a culture usually is enjoyed in a particular place of location, and familiarity with that location, cultural artifacts, um, and others actually help the culture to, to flourish uh, in terms of ties, uh, in terms of uh, practices, and also in terms of changes. But when conflict-related displacement takes place, and if it is displacement that is aimed at uprooting people, then the first thing they want to destroy are not just the lives, the livelihoods, but also the culture and the cultural networks. So when IDPs are displaced, um, those that displace them will go and destroy their homes, their burial places, places of cultural rights in spiritual ways, and especially if they're indigenous groups. Um, So the aim is actually to say that this is no longer your place of existence. Uh, at all. And in places of displacement, they're not able uh, to actually develop um, cultural ties. If anything, there's a complete breakdown uh, of culture uh, because of the disorientation that displacement brings about. Um, The men are the first victims. The loss of authority and position completely disorients them, and either they become drunk or they resort to domestic violence uh, and abuse, and it is left to the women actually to try and uphold uh, the integrity uh, of their values and um, children as well as family. But then, for that reason, you know, my report and missions show that the women are attacked for precisely that, because you want to destroy the community. So it's sexual violence, you, you, you're not a human being anymore, you're dehumanized, there's no one to protect you, and we can do what we want. You know, your men can't protect you either. So it's very dehumanizing you know, to reach at the core uh, of humanity and what makes a person uh, human. So in those IDP camps, there are no spaces. They're so congested, there is no space. Uh, basic human decency sometimes is lacking. You know, to be quite honest and frank, 
Um, and you know, for them, in protracted displacement, it becomes normal after a while you know, to be in that situation. Uh, but when you go as an outsider and look at those conditions, um, you know, the, the culture, the cultural values are completely destroyed. Uh, you see children 17, 20 years who don't know anything other than being an IDP, you know, in Sudan or in Georgia. Uh, some of them marry and then they bring their wives to the uh, IDP camps. Where can they take them? Um, and so the wives who are not IDPs also become, you know, IDPs to, you know, to that extent. So I think the protection uh, of culture and cultural heritage, which I actually haven't looked at very specifically, uh, would be very important. But it's something that I would probably do with my colleague Farida Shahid, whose mandate is specifically uh, on the issue of, of cultural rights. Um, the, do IDPs become you know, hostile or angry, or do they uh, re Of course they do. They're very angry people most of the time. And when you speak to them for the first five, ten minutes, you can see the anger coming out. Um, come and see how we live. They take you in their tents. Can you live like this? Do you want to live like this? Um, they actually think that perhaps you, you know, the label the UN, although you have to explain that you're an independent mandate holder, but I think that sometimes you have more to offer than you actually can. Uh, and that's part of the tragedy um, you know, of the state of affairs uh, in the context um, uh, of the mandate. And after that, of course, they calm down. Um, so the experiences let them ventilate whatever they say. Uh, when I met the women in Sri Lanka, this translator told me that he couldn't translate everything. You know, they said, you know, he feared that I might get offended. And I say, no. Um, you know, just let them say what they have to say. Um, I recall in Ukraine, uh, I met um, a group of women, and there's, there were some older women there. And they said, look, for all these years we have worked, now we can't even have, you know, our pensions. One old woman was very quiet. And then suddenly she looked at me and said, um, what's the papers of your mission? Uh, and I explained to her what the papers of my mission was. So her first response was, this is not Africa, it's cold here. <laughs> um, so she obviously thought I was not aware of the dynamics and the issues, and she was beginning from that perspective, until I told her, well, I also live in a cold place, <laughs> although I come from Africa. So you have to find some ways of connecting with them. But you know, very often they are angry people, they have clear messages to send, you know, when I went to Cote d'Ivoire, they said, can you tell our government? Because most of the IDPs are in an area where the former President Gbagbo was uh, in Western Cote d'Ivoire. And they said, can you tell our government we are not Bagbo's people? We are citizens of Cote d'Ivoire, and we want protection from the government. In Kenya, they said, uh, during the uh, last government, the Prime Minister and the President have reconciled. How about us? They have forgotten us. Can you tell them quite clearly that we need reconciliation and we need them to come and speak to us um, as IDPs? And I do convey those messages uh, quite clearly without flinching. You know, in Cote d'Ivoire, uh, the prime minister whom I gave the message kind of sat up and said, but what's, what's wrong with those people? Anyway, they have no alternative uh, you know, but to obey the government. I say, prime minister, they have an alternative. They can pick up arms which is where you've had the conflict in the first place. So you have to listen, 
to the message and be a government of all Ivorians. Um, and I think, you know, some, it's probably not as a result of that, but the prime minister shifted, uh, you know, by the president about two weeks, um, you know, after, after the visit. I can't say that was what, the reason. What, kind of, kind of sacked? Hold on a second. Yeah, Two weeks after he met you? They're obviously the dynamics. And he didn't answer your question appropriately. <laughs> this is an emerging power none of us knew. <laughs> Not many might invite me. The, the president of Sri Lanka, as powerful as he was, he lost the election. Yeah. Um, you know, I, and again, there the Tamils were telling me that, look, come an election... We're not a majority, but we can vote in a way that we can decide on the leadership. Uh, so they're very well aware in terms of their voting rights, their voting power. Uh, and there was a related yeah. question, actually, as it yeah. turns out, about conflict resolution from the Twitter. I mean, do you get involved in that kind of thing? That would be more or less. Uh... Conflict resolution? Oh, yes. Um, very, very directly uh, in some cases, especially where it's taking place and even trying to promote it, because it's part of what you call uh, applying durable solutions. So in relation to uh, South Sudan and even Sri Lanka, I had meetings with the military, the military high command, uh, to speak to them about cessation of hostilities and actually how to resolve um, conflicts. But much more importantly, um, I visited the African Union to make sure that the uh, talks were such that the IDPs were represented, uh, or at least their views, and they were part of the discussions, and they're not being talked over, because they're the real victims uh, of the conflict. Um, and to look at the uh, dynamics of how to involve civil society as well in the discussions, because civil society has a great stake, and on how to um, implement the, um, you know, the agreements themselves uh, forward uh, in a very, very direct way. Uh, in Colombia, it's much more remote, uh, you know, through other parties uh, that are involved. But again, the idea is to uh, bring the victims, you know, to the centre of the discussion. So I was delighted that FARC, the um, Armed Forces Revolution of Colombia, actually acknowledged and issued a, an apology to the victims as a starting point yeah. that they had caused harm. Um, so you follow the discussions where they are, and if you're able to take part, then you're able to take part. And in Kenya, I'm still involved in some kind of mediation from time to time. Mm -hmm. You know, when there are crises between organs of government, whether it's the judiciary and the Senate or the constitutional commissions and others, um, you know, very often um, I do go there in a very low-key profile. Yeah. So if you're involved in mediation, you don't want to be a factor. <laughs> Uh, in the mediation process. You want to facilitate the process, yeah. but in a way that is not principally visible. We, yeah. We're going to have to wrap up in a minute, Chilok, but I, I do want to ask you a question which is on my mind uh, this afternoon. If you were to pick one achievement in your professional life of which you are proudest, what would it be? Huh. I'm not quite sure. Well, maybe being an academic is one. <laughs> no, I, but I don't believe for a moment it's marking undergraduate <laughs> essays. I, I think, actually, um, I think having drafted and negotiated the African Union Convention on IDPs stands out, you know, for me. Um, the Constitution of Kenya may become second. Yeah. But the IDP Convention took some five years, and it was quite troublesome and it is the first binding instrument of its type anywhere uh, in the world. And I think everyone speaks very highly of it. And it was a single-led process. It's not as if you were a committee. You know, you had to think out. You had to respond to states. You had to engage with them. 
you know, to actually get the, uh, the right balance in, in terms of uh, the substance. And I believe it is that convention that actually persuaded people uh, for me to yeah. uh, become a mandate holder. Yeah. Well, uh, look, that's, that's great. I mean, we, we're, we're very grateful to that anonymous, we're very, we're very grateful to that anonymous person who, uh, while you were drafting the Constitution of Kenya, your second proudest moment, uh, put your name in for the internal displacement, uh, John. Uh, before I thank Chiloka on your behalf, let me just uh, push a few things. Tomorrow we're drafting the United Kingdom Constitution. If you can come along, uh, it's a law IPA co-host. Uh, it's on the web and it's in the new academic building. And uh, it's a crowdsourcing of the Constitution. And it's been going on for a year, and we're actually getting down to the actual drafting of the article. So if you're interested in that, come along. It's at 6 o'clock uh, tomorrow in New Academic Building Lower Ground Floor. Uh, the Law Department has uh, a tremendous event coming up on the 4th of February uh, with the uh, extremely well-known Professor Judith Butler, uh, who was really a leading intellectual, a, a tremendous person. And uh, it's on the Human Shield and it's about the militarisation of police forces, it's about the way in which increasingly we're using uh, people uh, as instruments in this way and uh, there couldn't be a better person actually to reflect intellectually on that and a subject which has a title it's Jan Klein-Heisterkamp from our own department which actually uh, bears statement this is on the 12th of February uh, investor protection in TTIP, fading democracy or new generation. Uh, what's people begin to realise after the economic problems of 2008 that we need to get on top if we're in the human rights world and taking things seriously. Things like TTIP, which uh, stands for Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership. And uh, what's wonderful about LSE is we have colleagues who have specialisms in the world of business and so on, as Jan does, who's looking at this subject through the lens of human rights and uh, it's where a lot of the action is, that's on Thursday the 12th of February here in this forum and uh, we have a, a, a Yasmin Ahmad who's the Secretary General of the Islamic Financial Services Board uh, in Kuala Lumpur uh, talking about uh, well it's a question Islamic finance standardisation uh, is, is it a mirage and that's a bit later on in the term. Uh, details will be on the web. In other words, we try and produce a range of cutting-edge uh, events here at LSE Law, and uh, we thought the best way to start the term was with a conversation with our enormously distinguished colleague, Chiloka Biane. And uh, can we uh, just acknowledge our appreciation of him and his, I have to say, I learned a lot this evening about what he does, uh, and it's not just marking essays, I've now realised. Uh, can we just acknowledge in the tradition an appreciation of his having given up his time to talk to us so compellingly this evening? Thank you. Thank you.